0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert Jith Weigel. The
1: attorney-client relationship is an enormously important relationship. Not only does it mean that something serious is going on in your life if you're considering hiring an attorney but it's an expensive proposition and it needs to be done well. Joining me in Center Ring today is David Yamamoto, one of my absolutely favorite attorneys of all time. Welcome, David. Thank you, Judy. Uh, I appreciate that comment. Of,
0: uh,
1: well, let me tell I will tell our audience why I'm making that comment. It's because David is so honest, ethical, forthright. He will not take your business if You don't need an attorney, and he will do what's necessary when you do. He owns his own law practice in Torrance, California, so just down the street from me. And also, David was the chairperson of the Los Angeles County Bar Family Law Section for some time. And that's a very prestigious position to be in. And I loved it when you were president. I loved the seminars and and the events that we had. It It was a great time. Thank you for doing that. You're welcome. So this is about amicable divorces, and the getting inside of the attorney-client relationship, I think, will be very educational. First of all, David, when people call me, some people have had attorney advice, some people haven't. And some people think it's being disloyal to their spouse if they get attorney advice and they want to use a different way of getting divorced, either me or, or or online, whatever. I really want to address this with you. What is the logic behind getting attorney advice?
0: Well, I think what the attorney has to do when they talk to the person is kind of feel what the person is looking for. For instance, I know what you're saying is a, They want to make sure that the time that they talk with you is confidential. They don't want anybody to know that they've talked to someone many times. Uh, And some people call because they want to see if you can figure out a way to resolve it without them going to court. But the I think the main reason why people feel guilty, I think, is what your question is about talking to a lawyer is because they're getting advice against someone. It is covert when they first meet uh, with the attorney. Uh, Most of the time they don't tell the other party they're meeting with an attorney. So I think the natural human tendency is to feel guilty about that. Um, but I try to make them feel at ease that uh, they have every right to do that and um, and they need to be educated regarding the process, even if they're just, you know, exploring to see or get educated about the process.
1: You made two really good points in there that um, that, it, that it could potentially, whatever the advice is or whatever the information is, the education is could be to the detriment, and I use that word in lowercase, not uppercase, to the detriment of the other party, you have to divide half of what you have. You have to pay some kind of support. They they, they look at that as, and I think that's a good point that you made, as against the other party. And the other point you made, which is interesting, is that they will do it without saying to their spouse, you know what, I'm going to see an attorney, I need to know. Maybe the better way to do it is, honey, let's both get. Well, if you can say honey and you're ready to get divorced, <laughs> <laughs> you, you're light years down the road. Yes. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's best that we both get advice. We both need to be educated, correct?
2: Yes, uh, that's true. But I think, you know, there's this <clears throat> issue of
0: control and abuse and a lot of hostility between the parties where it prevents them from talking to each other but you're right the best way is to be above board about everything but the but the human condition is prevents that from happening many times or most of the time when somebody comes in to see you for a divorce because by the time they get to the point that they want to be in your office it's or talk to you it's pretty serious That means they're strongly considering it. They may not go through with it, but they are definitely serious about it and they want to get some advice on it and they don't want to tell their spouse because it might cause more uh, hostility and dysfunction in the family, especially when there's kids involved. So a lot of times I think maybe it is better if they do actually come in um, and get a, a confidential privileged consultation The best way, yeah, obviously, in human relations is to be open and above board about it.
1: When people come to me and they start saying, um, you know, I, I haven't really gotten legal advice. We both decided, oh, here's the other thing. You may not know this. They tell me we've both decided not to see an attorney. And I say, "Well, I think you both made a pretty bad decision because I think you both need to see an attorney, and let's correct the record, and that is you can talk to an attorney. It doesn't mean you're paying a five thousand dollars retainer. you're just paying a very a fraction of money to have the ear and, and and the legal knowledge of somebody who can help you when you go to make decisions about your settlement. Yes.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, I hear that all the time too. Um, You know, the the husband or the wife or the partner will say, uh, listen, uh, you know, we've agreed that we don't want to get attorneys involved. uh, But, you know, my sister in law or my brother in law or my friend down the street is telling me that I should go get some legal advice. But, you know, I really don't want lawyers involved. And you're right, though. It's best to get the advice from a competent family law attorney if you're going through a divorce, at least to, like I said before, to get educated on the process and to have reasonable expectations set, um, to know what the law is. And I also tell people, you know, if you and and your spouse can reach an agreement, you don't really have to go by the law if you can reach an agreement that you guys can both live by. So. I always give that advice too, but I always tell them, even when I'm doing mediation, and I know you do mediation too, Judy, is I advise them that they have to get their own consulting attorneys. Um, And I tell them they need to do that because they need, it's in their best interest to consult with someone to learn what their legal rights are and what they're up against and whether they're reaching uh, a good agreement or a bad agreement, where they're basically committing financial suicide for the future or for their future. So yes, it's always best to con- at least consult with an attorney. Like you said, it doesn't cost that much and it could save you a lot of heartache in the end. Because as you know, as attorneys, uh, it happens more than a half a dozen times a year where you get someone that has made a big, big mistake and sometimes you can help them and sometimes you can't. And most of the time it's because they didn't have legal advice.
1: Yes, and be educated. And there are two words that are very important in the decision-making process for settlement, and that is informed consent. And you just brought it up a, a couple minutes ago. There's the law, and then there's what you want to do that works for both of you. Yes. But understanding the law so that you can move away from it and do what makes sense to both of you for your unique situation, that's where it's at.
0: I, I agree. Um, I agree that you have to, well, I think it's, sometimes I think it borders on malpractice if you don't tell them what the law is. You got to give them at least that basis so that they that they know what the law is. But if they agree, you know, to anything that's, that they can live with that is best for their family, then they don't have to follow the law. But I I believe that you do have to let them know what the law is as a foundation so that they know what they, hey, maybe my needs are met by what the law says. Maybe my needs aren't. But the way I try to practice is to be flexible. When you're in a litigated case, I still do litigation and, and you don't always have that available to you, flexibility. But in a collaborative case or mediation, yeah, you can get creative. And try to reach an agreement that will maybe not meet the interests of complete interests of both parties, but meet some of their interests so that they can come to a good compromise uh, that they can live with and then that they can move on with their lives. And that's really important when they have children, too.
1: Absolutely. And, and one other thing that I've noticed, and, and, and I bet you have too. So everybody tries to do their best in an amicable situation. You try and do your best to make the decisions that work for all of you and it's fair and and all of that. But if you haven't gotten legally educated, once the divorce is final, that's when you relax and you take a look back. And maybe you'll read your settlement agreement from a different perspective with different eyes, with a different level of emotion. And maybe you will want to kick yourself and have decision-maker remorse. Yeah? Yes. So, David, isn't there a period of time after the divorce is final, you get your divorce decree, when you can go back and maybe say, I didn't understand Uh, We didn't disclose everything. What do people say if they have decision-maker remorse and what is their recourse?
0: Well, there are several ways of going back to court to try to set aside an agreement. Um, One of them is that there was a lack of a proper disclosure of assets. Uh, There is a concealed asset. There was a Fraud, um, a fraudulent representation of a person's income when the support was made. For instance, somebody's making $200,000, uh, but uh, they agreed to a settlement based on him making 75000 because that's what he represented and he concealed information. And that's not just he or she, too. It goes both ways. But that's one way to get it set aside. And sometimes uh, we can get agreement set aside based on mistake. Mistake of fact. And I've been successful with that before where it, somebody honestly misunderstood what they were getting into. Um, but to set aside a judgment that's done right and the proper disclosures are made is very hard to set aside because there's a, a rule of finality. And, you know, the rule is basically the public policy is to end the case. You know, so that people aren't going back and back and back and back again for more relief.
1: So to go back to court to say, I was so emotional I didn't know what I was doing. Can we just do this over again?
0: Yeah. No that go. doesn't you're <laughs> Judy, yeah, you're right. You just answered your question. That's that's a no-go. But but we do get those, we get, you know, we get the cases that come in where the husband or the wife says I just wanted it over with. I was so emotionally distraught. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what my lawyer was saying or they didn't hear what their lawyer was saying. And some of these people have very good lawyers. And so, yeah, unfortunately, there's nothing you can do. So the lawyers have to be careful and um, we all have to be careful that we don't get a case over with just to get it over with, you have to be sensitive to the clients, your client's um, emotional state. Because there are clients that I've had, and it's it's not usual, but I do have clients that uh, I will not sign an agreement or recommend an agreement that they want to do because it's so one-sided. And the reason why they want to do it is because they either want to make the other party happy, so maybe they'll reconcile. Oh. Or they just want it over with at all costs and they're afraid to go to a lawyer because lawyers will rip them off so you know you get those types of cases and sometimes there's eh, nothing you can do about it you know
1: yes i um i had a case a few years ago we did quite a lot of mediation so time was taken i filed and we mediated so time was taken making decisions he did have counsel. She did not. Regardless, a lot of time was spent in mediation, rewriting, rewriting, rewriting things. Two to three years after the divorce was final, she filed in court. She felt pressured to to, to make decisions that went into the settlement agreement. I don't know how this, I, I just got called by the uh, former husband. I don't really know how this settled out in court, but I thought, God, that can't be an isolated incident. Um, I wonder if there are more people like that, that uh, simply don't like what the settlement is or don't really express that they feel like they've been, pr- they're pressured. I mean, if people feel pressured, let's just talk about this. It can pause. Can it not? Everybody can stop and take a breath at some point to regroup, can't they?
0: Yes, but sometimes it's really hard to tell because in the heat of the moment when you're trying to reach a settlement, which is quite common in divorce cases, because no matter how amicable it is or how settlement-oriented the people are, it's emotional because the people had a long-term relationship. And a lot of times, many, many years of a relationship before they even got married. So, there's a lot of emotional baggage, so to speak, that goes along with it. and But that person you're talking about maybe never showed that anxiety or showed the emotional, uh, what do you call it, Um, objective signs of being maybe upset and maybe not believing what was going on and maybe not trusting anybody. Cause I've had those situations, my, my own clients, I've had that where they're cool, calm and collected and okay, listen, and then two or three days later, all of a sudden, why did we do that? You know, they get, they get anxious, you know, and they're saying, why did, blah, 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 and they get upset. Um, and so that's why, that's why sometimes you can't even tell, you don't even know. But once that happens, then you know about that client, but sometimes they're really good at hiding it because, mm-hmm. They feel like they're, they're supposed to be cool, calm, collected, and not show emotion. And sometimes they're afraid to tell you how they really feel. So it does happen. Um, sometimes you can tell. It's real obvious. And then the clear signs are there: is I can't get my client to sign anything today because I want them to think about it. I want to give them two weeks to think about it. I want to give them a week to think about it. And there are cases that I have like that. But there are also cases I've had, not many, Um, very few, but where there were no signs of someone not trusting the process. And then all of a sudden, two days later, after you've reached a tentative agreement or a written agreement, uh, they're upset about it. It just happens. Human nature is complex, Judy.
1: Oh, my gosh. Is it ever? And, I, you know, I thought personal injury law was the hardest because somebody's obviously been affected for life or maybe died. And I've sat in on personal injury arbitrations, fee dispute arbitrations years ago. Nothing compares to family law. Nothing. Yep. Family law is your whole, the, the litigant, it's, it's their whole life. It's financial, it's emotional, it's personal, it's cultural, it's religious. It's everything. And then you're inviting strangers into your life because you need them, attorneys, mediators, whoever you invite into the process. And I think all the good people, even attorneys who are supposed to be passion-free, you do have to assess somebody's emotional state, but we're not therapists either you know what can we do but listen and maybe encourage as much contemplation as possible so that when you do come to a decision, I mean how how many years have you practiced law?
0: Well, in June it'll be 36.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: And you know, even though I still do litigation, it um I realized Maybe twenty years ago that that was sometimes counterproductive and it was destructive, and that you didn't take the time to take your clients' um,
2: frame of mind uh, their
0: circumstances into consideration, you know, you just treated them not like a number, but you treated them within the realm of what the law is, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think what you're saying is you're right. You got, there's so many things you need to consider in a family law case. The dynamics are important. We can't do anything about who's been the jilted spouse. We can't do anything about that, but we need to be sensitive to it because it's going to have a lot to do with how you approach the settlement. Um, it's going to have a lot to do with how long things are going to take. It has a lot to do with whether you should be patient with this person and let them filter it because sometimes the dust will settle. And when you first see them, they're in a terrible spot and six months later or a year later, they're kind of moving on and you see a different client. You don't see that needy, Worrisome client that you saw at the beginning, you see someone that now is confident about themselves and and they want to move on so and diversity too cultural diversity we live in uh, in a very culturally diverse community in Los Angeles that has to be considered too just like you mentioned it's um, so all those things come into play it's not just the law it's it's cultural diversity it's trying to have empathy for the client's uh, situation. Um, We can't be therapists. So I tell people they need to go to therapy. I suggest that they go to therapy and get a therapist. Um, I'm sure you do that too. We suggest it all the time. Mm -hmm. In collaborative cases, we, we suggest and we require many times that the parties have coaches, which are not therapists, but mental health experts that do help them get through that process so they can get to a point where they can trust each other because that's what blows up most cases that go to litigation is that lack of trust. So, and it's worked very well in many collaborative cases where if it wasn't for the coaches, the case would not have succeeded and they would have ended up dropping the collaborative process and going to court and spending a lot more money and getting to the same place they probably would have got it in collaboration so, yeah you're right. you have to it's not just the practice of law it's all the other factors that have to be considered too.
1: I have really not heard many attorneys speak in the way you just spoke, which is very compassionate and and uh human and, and that I, I appreciate that I appreciate listening to you say that and, and and I'm sure so do the listeners money there's a lot of money involved so When somebody just wants legal information, there is a small fee they pay when they come, not a retainer. Let's talk about money. Let's talk about what's involved if they just want to come and learn the lay of the land legally versus actually hiring an attorney.
2: Okay, so I
0: see a lot of people and... But, it's all the initial retainer, I do charge for some people, um, I'll do it at a lower fee, but I have a flat fee for the initial consultation. And it's less than my hourly rate, but it's significant so that I you know I have to stay in business, right? so i if I do free consultations, I'll go out of business. but but I do give them the best consultation I think i can I can give. But yeah, and, and a lot of people, it's just that initial consultation that they need. They don't want a divorce, but they have a spouse who keeps on threatening divorce and they just want to talk to someone about what's going to happen if I actually go through it. And then there's the people that we consult with that are going through mediation. Uh, The retainer is much smaller and the cost is not very much. For instance, you know, I mean, you've heard of the cases that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, but those are big money cases usually, but sometimes people, you know, they're not, they're so angry at each other that they, they spend half of their estate on attorney's fees, which is ridiculous. But so people don't have to get full representation. People can get representation just for consulting. Like I'll have a little retainer and they can call me whenever they want to get some advice and they're handling their own divorce through a mediator. Um, I spoke to a young couple yesterday that were only married for a year. And I, you know, it didn't have to go beyond an initial consultation because they fit the profile for a summary dissolution, which most people can do themselves. Mm -hmm. So that was it. I'll probably never see them again. Um, but in my consulting for mediations yeah most of the time that even that small retainer part of it gets refunded because it's not all used up okay
2: right.
0: yeah but when it comes to
2: the fees for for
0: litigation it can be very expensive
1: you know let's talk more about that so yes. uh, absolutely attorneys are required this is not a case that i would handle or me or, or another me so talk, let's talk about money. So they're hiring you, they're hiring an attorney, there's a retainer. What's the, I people charge slightly different. What would be a range for an initial retainer?
0: Well, it varies all over the place because there's no regulation on it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I've, I'll take a retainer to litigate a case as low as 5,000. And I've had retainers paid of $50,000.
2: Oh.
0: Um, but I know attorneys out there who take a very little retainer and just bill by the month, you know, and send a bill every month and just work that way. Um, but my minimum retainer usually is $7,500, $7,500 if it's going to be litigated. My um, early rate is $450, which is low for somebody of my caliber. But but then again, um, there's no regulation on it. So attorneys, I've seen attorneys charge as low as 150 an hour recently, to eight or nine hundred dollars an hour, sometimes even a thousand dollars an hour.
1: Okay, both of those numbers scare me. 150 and a 1, thousand, they both scare me for different yeah. reasons.
0: Yeah, I no, and I understand that, um, but. What you have to do is you have to tell a client that, you know, what I tell them is that it's a replenishable retainer. And when it gets down to a certain amount, they have to replenish it and pay what they owe. Most of all the clients I have that sign up, obviously sign up for that. And they know that at least I believe I have a reputation of being reasonable. Uh, There will be times where I will no charge things. Uh, I will always consider the financial status of the parties and, or my client,
2: but it's, um, yeah,
0: that, I mean, I I think every divorce attorney goes, God, I can't afford, I couldn't afford me, you know? But then again, at the same time, really the reason why we're in business is because they can't afford not to have us. If you get a good lawyer that's going to charge you reasonable fees, it's worth it, in my opinion. And I've gotten a lot of thank you letters in that process. So I know uh, that the people that most of the people that do pay you appreciate it, you know, and uh, and most of most of the clients that we have out there do appreciate what we do for them.
1: I know they do because they tell me. Um, All right. So. A retainer of $7,500 is paid. Your hourly rate is $450. You log the work that you do, phone calls, emails, filings, all of that. You log that work. You look at the number of hours it took. You list what you do, and you show the client how much of the retainer has been used each month. Is that how you do it? And if there's any hard costs that have to be billed, uh, while the retainer is still in play and, 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 and you being used, you'll bill for hard costs?
0: Yes. So the retainer is, is that uh, they, we bill for, obviously we charge for out-of-pocket expenses that we advance for them. Uh, the filing fee for a divorce is $435. So that comes out of their retainer. Yeah, we bill against it. And then every month after the first of each month, we provide them with a detailed billing statement of what we've done, what the paralegal's done, what the associates have done, what I've done. And they get that every month. So they get the opportunity to take a look at it. And I told them, we don't charge you to talk about the bill. We might've made a mistake on it, or you might look at something and go, why in the heck, David, are you doing that? Or I never gave you authority to do that. So what I tell them is, to give me a call whenever you think that, you know, you think that we're doing something wrong or you think that we're not doing enough. I always say, give me a call right away because we can usually clear it up with a five minute phone call. And that's usually true. And
2: when somebody's, you know, maybe
0: complaining about a bill or something, uh, you know, and they call me, yeah, we work it out. And sometimes I do make a mistake, but I do look at the billing very carefully before it goes out and make sure that, you know, it, it's correct and it's not unreasonable. And, you know, I think most firms will do that. They will look at their billing each month. They have someone that looks it over to see if, you know, maybe maybe an associate is, is uh, billing too much. Maybe there was too much time spent on a task that should have been taken half the time. You know, so that's the way I look at it. and. But they appreciate the fact there are attorneys out there that, you know, they don't send a bill for a year. And then all of a sudden they need money, so they send a bill out. And it's for a huge amount of money. And the client is just falls off their seat because they didn't receive any monthly billing statements. And I think 90% of us send out the billing statements every month. But you get those... Every once in a while, you get someone that calls you that says, oh, God, I paid the initial retainer two years ago, and I just got a bill for $50,000, you know, just, or whatever.
1: Yeah, you know, I've heard of that too, but that had well, because I've mediated attorney-client fee disputes for the LA County Bar Association for many years, and that's always surprising to me as a business person that you wouldn't send out a billing statement each month it takes time and effort but the blowback on it is horrible um you're kind of advancing your services for free yes you actually get paid
0: well that's the main problem yeah i mean the main reason why i do it is somewhat selfish and obviously you want to get paid for your work
1: well you have to live
0: You got it. So I want to get paid. So the only, the best way to get paid is to keep your client informed about what they're paying for. Right. Yes. And they see that you're working on their case. They see that you care about their case. Um, and yeah, I get very, very, very few complaints about, about my billing
1: you said something a minute ago that I find interesting with people and, and, and this will go into, you know, what makes a good attorney client relationship, but wait a minute, I saw this line item, something that you did and I didn't give approval to do this. Okay. There's a lot in that statement. First of all, how would the average person know what to do, what not to do what's too much, what's not enough. I mean, that's that's a lot.
0: Yeah, I think you have to make it clear in your retainer and when you meet with the client that we are going to do things where we don't have to consult with you. Um, But most of the time what I do to prevent that is to talk to the client. Like if we're going to make a motion and spend three hours of their time doing the motion I consult with them in advance and get their authority to do it, so that heads off a lot of that because what can happen in some cases is that uh, the there's turners out there that will just you know bill their client doesn't know what they're doing, but they're billing a lot of money there's not a lot a lot of those out there um, but you know it's 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 there's a few that give us a bad reputation, right? As True. somebody that will turn a case. And, but what I try to do is let them know that there are certain times where we'll be able to make judgment calls on your behalf. But that was a good question, Judy, because most of the time my, my deal is even if we're going to write a letter, we tell the client, hey, we're going to write a letter to the other side. Uh, is that okay? They say, okay, we write the letter, we draft it. We send them a draft. They get their approval first, unless it's an emergency. Uh, pleadings, when we file pleadings, we send it to our client to make sure that they're okay with it. There's sometimes some some things like discovery that you send out, or subpoenas that you send out that you you know that you don't have your client review. But anything that pertains to them personally, you know, uh, especially to for their substantive rights. Yeah, we my office policy is to make sure that they have informed consent before it goes out.
1: So when you're meeting with a client, you've taken on the case, and you see different aspects of the case that have to be dealt with, there's some priority order to how you go about it. If spousal support and child support are immediately needed, you know, you take care of things like that. How much do you plan the work out with your client? strategize together. So your client has some type of understanding of the road ahead.
0: Yeah. uh, I learned a long time ago um, when I did criminal law, family law and personal injury, uh, I was doing a criminal jury trial and I was strategizing and I was doing all this stuff and setting things up. And we actually, um, For my client, it was a a good result because it was a hung jury and they didn't refile. But he called me really upset two or three weeks before the trial and says, what's our strategy? What are we going to do? And I forgot that I had been barely cluing him in on that. I had my witnesses set up. I talked to the witnesses, but my client personally didn't know what I was going to Present at the jury trial as his defense, and so I learned from that that yeah, that like I said before, when we tell our clients about the letters and things like that that are going to go out, that we try to keep them in the loop and have strategy meetings with them. For instance, uh, after you and I talk, I have a strategy meeting with a client. But you know, because we get so busy and we have a lot of clients, sometimes. You know that we we always it's hard to remember, but we got to get the clients involved in what we do, and there are, we're a team. We're not like I tell people I'm not a garage mechanic. You don't bring the car into my office and and we fix it and then you drive it off and everything's okay. No, we need all the information we we can get from you, and we need all your participation because you know more about your case factually than we do, right?
2: Hmm. Hmm.
1: So what makes for a good attorney-client relationship?
0: I I think that um, being able to have direct, not to mince words with your client, to be empathetic, but to be a straight shooter. I think straight shooter is the best way to put it. Um, I just try to be a straight shooter. There's sometimes where you, You know, you get on your
2: shining armor, get on your white horse, and you go after the other side.
0: But, you know, it's, and unnecessarily so, actually, you know. But I think the best way to do it is when your client and you have this relationship where he can tell you when he thinks you're wrong or criticize you. And I don't take it personally. And same with the client. I mean, we're going to hurt each other's feelings occasionally. But if we have that kind of relationship where we can be upfront with each other, then we can help each other. They're, they're not hiding anything from me, and I'm, not, and I'm informing them so that they don't get blindsided when they go to court. And, you know, that's hard because there's so many things that could happen when you go to court. Absolutely. But you, but you do, you know, you want a client that's going to be a straight shooter, and, and uh, the client should want an attorney that's going to be a straight shooter.
1: What if you have somebody who comes to you and they have a lot of money and they just want to hurt their soon-to-be former spouse?
0: Okay, Let's so do everything
1: Jen- we can yeah
0: go ahead. yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you, you no, know, I totally I had a change uh, um, like a paradigm shift 20 years ago where I started realizing that <clears throat> the job that I learned in law school was like okay, you got to fight for your client and go to court and tear the other side apart. But I started realizing that that was destructive in some cases because that other person is a human being and may not be as bad as your client is telling you that person is. But uh, to get to your point is,
2: um, I
0: generally will not take a case like that. If somebody is just out and they have, because those people have unreasonable expectations, you know, like, okay, you know, the simple rule is you divide community property by two, but maybe they want everything. And they're trying to think of all these issues that, that you could use against the other side that are, quite frankly, irrelevant. Quite frankly, if you go to court, you would get laughed out of court. But that's what I, I tell them. And, you know, I don't have... I don't have to say I'm not going to take your case. They don't want to retain me because I'm not telling them what they want to hear. Yes. And I wouldn't want to, you know, represent someone like that anyways. And sometimes you get somebody like that at the beginning of a case because they're so emotional and angry at the other party for maybe cheating or something that they're like that, but a year down the road they're not like that anymore. They realize things have to be divided equally and they have to, you know, and they should try to be fair about it. So the dust settles for a lot of these people that are unreasonable um, at the beginning.
1: Okay. Now, somebody absolutely needs attorney representation. They don't have the money, but they do have assets. Is this negotiable somehow? How can you provide service for somebody that does not have direct, accessible cash, but has assets.
0: Well, in that case, there's a thing called a a family law lien or a family law attorney lien. Uh, The acronym is FLARPL, F-L-A-R-P-L. And you can, if your client will agree, you can actually get them to guarantee their fees against one of their properties, um, by doing a note and deed of trust. So you can secure your fees up that way, excuse me. Uh, I've, I don't really like doing cases that way a lot because up until you get paid, you're paying for their case. You're paying all their costs. You're paying, you know, if you take a deposition, you pay $2,500 for them or whatever it might be. So I really don't like doing that. Unless I know, I'm pretty sure that the property is going to sell because you can get one of those liens, maybe the property doesn't sell, you know? I
1: never even thought about it that way.
0: Oh, well, yeah. What happens at that, you know? Oh, shit. But, but most attorneys have a lien on the client's outcome, so to speak, on, on the settlement. Um, my attorney fee agreement does have that too. Um, if there are funds in an account, it could be an investment account, it gets divided. I can tell the client, listen, you sign an agreement that, you know, you would pay me guarantee payment out of the settlement proceeds of your case. So attorneys do that too. Um, sometimes, uh, I will, you know, yeah, when there's, when there's no cash moving out and they can't afford to pay you. All at one time, then yeah, it's a, it's it's a way to get paid.
1: Okay, I just wanted people to hear that. Now let's go to when when an attorney wants the other person to pay, the money is on the other spouse. Yes, how, how does that
2: work?
0: Well, first of all, the law is that if there's a disparity in income and the one, the low earner needs the fees, then the court must make an order. That means the court has to make an order, okay? So if you have someone that makes 100000 and you have someone that makes 10000 I don't like using big figures because a lot of people don't make the millions of dollars that we see come through our offices sometimes. But that $100,000 person obviously has the ability in that case and the person making $10,000 really has the need and in that case the court would order the high earner to pay a contributive share of the low earner's fees it's usually not 100% it's usually not even 80% but you know there's a contribution that has to be made so that that person can obtain representation and i've actually taken several cases based on that where i take a just a small starting fee from my client and then We file for attorney's fees or ask, in a collaborative case, we ask the other attorney, hey, can you talk to your client about paying my fee?
1: Without filing in court
0: for it. Yeah, without filing for it.
1: So just to let people know that it is a process, or it can be a process, to ask the court for that order, you actually have to file a request for a hearing.
0: Yes. You have to file what they call a request for order. The acronym that they'll hear all the time is RFO.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, but it has to be very specific. It has to be very detailed so the court knows why you need those fees and costs and why you need some to hire an appraiser and why you need to hire a forensic accountant. For instance, if someone is self-employed and you need to find out what the cash flow is for support or the value of the business, then and the outspouse, the one that's not in the business, let's say a housewife, or a house husband is more than likely going to get a large part of their fees paid by the other spouse, unless they have a huge estate that's going to be divided later. And eventually, you know, that person who needs the fees is going to, you know, have $20 million in assets or something, you know, then they can afford to pay their own fees at that point. But through the process, they'll be able to get a contribution. So they, their attorney can get paid while they're going through the litigation.
1: Okay, so that's good, because that's so confusing to people, um, this whole thing about uh, being afraid of attorney's fees or not understanding about it and and, and the options available, especially if you absolutely need legal counsel as part of the process um, to do it right. So now I want to touch on what if the petitioner has an attorney The respondent is surprised, thought we were going to make our own decisions, seemed fairly easy what we're doing, but the petitioner just felt they needed the support. Some people, when it really comes down to it, don't feel confident to make their own decisions. What if they're making the wrong decision? What if I really put myself in a bad position? So, okay, so that person then hires an attorney. Maybe they have some money that they've saved, family gives them money, they're paying that attorney. The other person, the respondent, comes to me. Can you just do my paperwork for me, Judy? Yes, I can. I can file a response for you. We can go and do your disclosures. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, But what happens is, when it's time for the person I'm filing for to either get the disclosures from the attorney, which seemed to come years later. I I swear to you, David, I'm on it with those disclosures. You come to me to file a response. I'm pulling out the disclosures in that meeting. I'm going to go through them with you. And I say the fastest you can get these back to me, it is in your favor that we get them to the other attorney so we can get this discussion rolling. Yes. I don't know what happens. Most of the time, the, the, the disclosures from the petitioner's attorney, which should come first, don't. I will then send the disclosures over to the attorney. I can't really talk for the respondent. That would be called representing them. So very, I can't call the attorney and say, hey, when are you going to send the disclosures? And I say to my client, call the attorney. Ask when you're going to get the disclosures and the attorney won't talk to them. If they're not represented, the attorney won't talk to them.
2: Can we Um,
0: please
1: address this issue? The two issues I just presented.
0: Yes, most of the cases I have, uh, both parties are represented, but I do, when someone's not represented, I have an obligation to work with that person to get through the case. How are you gonna get it done if they file the response and they're involved in the case, and your client wants a divorce and they want to end their relationship, not only the marital status, but also their financial status with each other, right? So I am not one of those guys that will ignore someone who's representing themselves. Um, I have a policy like you to try to get the, the, the disclosure out as soon as possible and to try to do a very detailed disclosure. I tell people the more you're above board, the better you're going to do. The people that tell the truth usually win. And, so you know. So nice
1: to hear. So nice to hear. Keep going. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of us. I I, I know several attorneys out there that, that that's their motto. Just like a, a lot. I think almost all the good attorneys have that same motto. You got to tell us the truth. I mean, good, bad, or indifferent. Just be honest about things. Okay. I mean you know, we try to help people whether it's good, bad, or indifferent too. It doesn't matter. Just tell us the truth because when you don't tell us the truth, then we lose credibility. You lose credibility with your own attorney too. But yeah, but to address your, your thing, uh, people that represent themselves uh, need to be responded to. Sometimes people that represent themselves are, are difficult to deal with, just like attorneys can be deal difficult to deal with, but they have to be dealt with because you can't, how can you get the case done if you don't talk to the other side? You know, except to go to trial and spend a lot of money and put your life in the hands of someone that's sitting on the bench that doesn't know you from Adam. you know, and sometimes they're needed. i mean they they serve a very valuable purpose sitting up there uh, because a lot of people need need decisions uh, made. but if you can but if you can avoid court and talk to people, and try to work things out at least give it a shot then maybe you can save yourself the the angst of having to go to court to resolve any issues because you, you want to stay out and you want to stay out of court and public policy of the state of California is to try to resolve cases without going to court
1: is there a reason that i don't understand that would make an attorney representing one side generally the petitioner not respond to the unrepresented party
0: um I really don't know I think it's just because they're busy or maybe they don't really just you know I don't know I, I don't know the answer to that I, I, I can't even if it
1: was, well I wondered if it was just the comfort level of talking to another attorney attorney to attorney feels better
0: that, I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think we'd rather, sometimes we'd rather talk to an attorney about a case rather than uh, someone that's representing themselves because attorneys have a kind of a language that we talk about, you know, and we can cut to the chase sometimes. Right. But when you talk to someone who's representing themselves, they don't really know what to focus on a lot. But that doesn't mean anything because even our own clients are like that. We need to talk to our clients. We need to talk, you know.
1: Right. That's, that's why everybody's in the same boat.
0: <laughs> well, that's the problem is that the lack of communication causes problems in, in all our cases. And I've been guilty of it, too. We get busy and we don't pick up the phone when, all, you know, it takes five minutes for a phone call. Just pick up the phone and you can smooth things over, you know. Uh, I've been guilty of that. Um, but I try, I, try, I try not to do that.
1: I understand. Do you is there an issue of malpractice maybe that's running in the background? Um, if they can they say or do anything to the unrepresented party,
0: um, get
1: them in legal trouble?
0: You mean the up, unrepresented party no, getting the attorney in trouble or
1: the attorney themselves? Do they feel there's an issue of malpractice if they say something if they? I I don't know, negotiate, I don't know. I just, I could never understand why an attorney would not return a phone call or an email to an unrepresented party, especially if the unrepresented party is ready to talk. Let's make a deal. Let's settle settlement.
0: Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think some people are too busy or they're not paying attention or they just don't want to deal with, with people. Um, in general because attorneys that I find that attorneys that are like that usually don't talk to their own clients and you know the biggest complaint that you probably heard in your fee disputes and the biggest complaint that's heard by the state bar is attorneys not talking to their clients and not returning phone calls
1: in a time that is yeah that's
0: the number one complaint yeah and so I think it's not only talking to a person that's representing themselves I think that attorney who probably does that probably doesn't talk to their own own clients, you know? And sometimes maybe they're they're worried about not being prepared to talk to the other party. I don't know. But Judy, like I said before, I really don't know what the answer is to that, but it's a good question.
1: Okay. Well, it'll keep coming up. Yes. (laughs) I don't think it's gonna go away anytime soon.
0: Nope.
1: Um David, lastly, how can somebody um ascertain whether there is work being done that might be unnecessary or conversely, not enough being done to move the case forward. How can how can, it, how can a, a client understand where they're at?
0: Uh, I think the the thing is to have a good relationship with your attorney. And find an attorney that will answer your questions, that will return your calls, because most of us will let our clients know where they're at, let us know what the strategy or let them know what the strategy is when we have meetings, and give them options too. You can do this, you can do that, you can do the other thing. There's, As you know, there's many ways to approach an issue, not just one legal way to do it. Right and uh, I think that's the best way is to find an attorney that you're compatible with. If you have an attorney that's not returning your phone calls or keeping you in the loop and keeping you apprised of what's going on, or it doesn't have a clue, or is doing things that are that have been negative rather than positive, you need to get a second opinion. And I have people that question what I'm doing. I I readily tell them, you know if you think that I'm doing something wrong, get a second opinion. I strongly advise it. Uh, so it, it's, 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 um, it's up to the client and it's up to the attorneys, I think, to start having a better relationship, I think, generally speaking, um, because that is the main problem, I think, with the attorney client relationship is a lack of communication and sometimes we talking down to our clients not being respectful that type of stuff it's really um you hear that you hear that all the time but i think it's getting better i think i think attorneys now I, you hear in the old days the old attorneys would really just rip up their clients and yell and scream at them if they didn't do what they wanted them to do
1: oh my god it, that's so
0: funny. you know they call it client control but Client control, sorry about the phone.
1: That's okay, Uh, it's real life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I, uh, I, um, yeah, I think that's something we all have to work on and it's hard and it'll be an uh, evolving thing and it'll be something that needs to be worked on just like uh, the state of the world, you know, we have to keep on improving on it. And eventually we may never uh, reach euphoria, but we might, or get what we, you know, get to that spot where everything's perfect. Well, if we got to that spot, you wouldn't need us, right, Judy?
1: Well, maybe, (laughs) hard to say. But I like that you said communication. Every relationship, I don't care what type of relationship it is, we have to be able to be comfortable communicating. We have to communicate. We have to be engaged. Things aren't going to take care of themselves unless we are a part of it. And I like also that you said, get a second opinion. If you think your attorney isn't doing what you feel should be done, whatever that is, get a second opinion. Let somebody know where the case is at. And just maybe your attorney is doing the right thing. Your level of expectation was incorrect. Or maybe you do need to get another attorney. If you do, what's the process?
0: Okay. uh, You said something that's very good because I get second opinions and many times, in fact, I would say probably most of the time I tell them that their attorney's doing the right thing, you know, and that they just don't understand. But if you do want to get another attorney, there's a process called, um, well, all you have to do is say, hey, listen, I want to hire you because the rule is, is that you can, you can fire your attorney at any time. You don't have to have cause. You just call them and tell them, I don't want to use your services anymore. And normally what will happen is if if I get subbed out of a case or if I sub into a case, what we do is, if let's say if I sub into a case, I will let the other attorney know that the client has hired me and I'll send them what they call a substitution of attorney. And the client signs off on it, I sign off on it, and the other attorney signs off on it. And then that makes the relationship official at that point in time. But until that sub is signed, the other attorney, the previous attorney, remains attorney of record. But, yeah, you can change lawyers. Uh, You, you know, uh, attorneys have to file motions that they don't want to represent somebody.
1: Well, that's what I was going to ask next. What if you want out of the relationship?
0: Yeah, well, what I do is um, I will... Let them know that we're not a good mix. Uh, In fact, sometimes what I'll say is, oh, okay, so you don't trust me. You don't trust my advice. You're not listening to me. But that's okay. But you need to get someone that you feel more comfortable with and that you can trust, okay? Because obviously you don't trust me. And I will communicate that to them three or four times, maybe just one or two times. But I will then send a letter to them saying, here's a substitution of attorney if you sign this document, it'll end our relationship and you'll be free to find another attorney of your choice. Okay. If the client refuses to do that, then you file a motion to withdraw and the courts normally will grant that as long as there's, it won't prejudice the client. There's not a trial in two weeks. There's not a hearing in two weeks. There's not something bad that's going to happen to the client. Uh, and then if that's the case, then of the time, they'll let you out of the case because they don't want people stuck in a relationship that's not working. It's like you can get a divorce from, you can get a divorce, you can also get a divorce from your client, I guess you could call it, right?
1: (laughs) That's right. There's a lot of divorces going on here. Uh, (laughs) Such a tough, this is all tough, this is all tough, but when it works, it's beautiful.
0: Yes. And and that's what we
1: always strive for. I really appreciate you spending the time. I know how busy you are. You've given such phenomenal information here. And I've really seen another side of you. I mean, I've always respected you and felt so good when I would give your name to people. Please go to this gentleman. He's going to treat you upright, fair and square. But you've just said some other things that have, have just put other aspects very, very compassionate. Uh, even more compassionate side to who you are. And I, I've, a, I've loved this time with you for that reason. Thank you, David.
0: Yeah, and I just want to say something about Judy, too, is that she's an exceptional paralegal and mediator, and she knows that I've given her, her name to a lot of people, too. Yeah. And so she's very good. She's reliable, someone you can trust.
1: I appreciate that. I do. I it's a mutual admiration society here, feeling very comfortable. David, if somebody would like to call you, this is going to be in show notes, your information, but just to finish this, how can they get in touch with you?
0: Well, they can call me when my phone number is 310-373-4838. Or they can email me at david at dkylaw.com.
1: David at dkylaw.com. You got it. Thank you so much, David. I appreciated this. Um, yeah, yeah, I owe you. I owe you. Thank
0: you very much, Judy. I appreciate it too.
1: And I appreciate all of you listening. Thank you all. I hope this has been extremely helpful to you. If you would like to get in touch with me, you may at my email address for this podcast, Judith at the amicable divorce com. Please share this with your friends, subscribe if you do not already, and as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse,
2: and cherish your children above all else.